This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com Shalom, all you beautiful people. What do you guys think? Who, who wrote the Bible? Anyone got a power bank for me? Someone's got power? power. This whole group, no one's got a, one of those little bricks? Yay! Thank you, nice lady. So, hi, my name is Yom Tov Glazer. I was uh, born and raised in uh, Southern California in uh, Los Angeles, and uh, I grew up surfing most of the time. Uh, I decided that school was a little too much for me when I was a kid, and, and I just rode waves a lot of the time and mountain biked. In fact, I'm still sweating right now from a major mountain bike ride that I took about two hours ago, and so, which means I'm like totally charged. Yeah, having bombed a couple of massive hills of Jerusalem all the way to the bottom. Remember you climbed up Jerusalem when you came here? So there's some trails that go all the way to the bottom. And they're really hair-raising because it's all terraced. You know, our whole, everything's terraced. So some very creative mountain bikers, I'm one of them, have built the most insane trails ever that if you're in full body armor, you can experience. And it's really, really wonderful. So welcome. And... Uh, today, what we're basically talking about is, is who wrote this document? You know, you could be the biggest atheist in the world, you still call it a document. The Torah is a document. Documents have authors. Documents have authors. Never been a document without an author. And so most people, especially people who are reasonable people, would consider that whoever wrote this document must have been a person, because most documents are written by people. Whereas the Jews claim that this document is divine, that the document's actually God-given. Now, I don't know where you guys are at on that, you know, whether you've, got, you've passed the judgment out on whether it's, it's God-given or not. I mean, just looking at some of you guys, you look like, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir, you know, a little bit here. Um, you guys, most of you look mostly convinced here, which just doesn't make my job very fun. But, but the, um, anyway, but we want to know the source. Now, it is a little funny that we're even having this discussion because uh, let's take, for example, uh, I don't know, what's your name, sir? Daniel. Daniel. Let's take Daniel, for example. Let's say Daniel wrote a little something down on his paper that, that the state of Israel felt was uh, a threat. Yeah, but they don't know he wrote it. It's just written down. He didn't sign it. No, no name connected to it. Do you think that if we took all of our top, you know, security people in the highest tech level, you know, people dealing with texts like this. Um, do you think they could probably figure out where it came from? What do you think? Likely. And none of them would be like trying to decide whether it was, maybe God wrote it. I don't think that would have been one of the options there. I mean, they would just be like, the question is which person wrote it? Not, not whether God wrote it. So, I mean, have we really, like, have we like lost our minds that we're actually having a discussion here with whether a book was written by a human being or God, I mean, shouldn't that be just pretty plain and simple and obvious? Whether God or man wrote this document? I mean, I mean, if, if man wrote it, it should be blatantly obvious, and if God wrote it, it should be blatantly obvious, meaning whoever this burglar is who wrote this thing must have stopped and had some chocolate cake in the kitchen and now has spread it all over the, the, the crime scene. You know, it's just ridiculous that we're even having this discussion. Except you're all sitting here waiting to find out who wrote the document. 
And you know why that is? And I hate to call a spade a spade, and you guys are going to be like, thinking that it's not very nice what I'm about to say, and so I apologize in advance, and I never want to offend anybody. So if I ever offend anybody, it's always your fault. <laughs> and that is that we kind of wish that it was a human being. There's part of us that wishes it was God, so we don't feel like total idiots singing, you know, every Friday night while there's a Sting concert going on in the same city. You know, you could either be, you know, with Sting going, If you love somebody, if you love someone, you know, or you could be sitting around a table going, Kari Bone, Olam, Ve'almaya, Ve'almaya. You know, it's like, if you don't mind, you know, I'll go to the Sting concert and like, you know, put me out of my misery than sit around a Shabbos table where everyone's talking about either marriage or babies, you know, like, hello, not everyone has marriage or babies these days, you know, like, like I can't go to another Shabbos table without, like, you know, you, you just you start to understand these knuckleheads, you know, that just, you know, want to blow themselves up in the middle of Shabbos tables. Now, the, um, so there's a part of this that just, wants it to be divine because then you should be at that Shabbos table and there's another part of us that just wants to go to the Sting concert and get high (laughs) and so we've discovered that it's worth having this discussion (laughs) and that's called discovery is like let's, let's have this discussion and figure out where we belong now obviously if Sting's playing Saturday night it's winter you finish Shabbos, make Abdullah, get your behind into a car and get over to the Sting concert. I mean, that's a no-brainer. But what if Sting's playing Friday night? So that's where this class comes in. Clear? And so with methods of verification, you know, just in review, you know, you want, if you want to know anything, so like, for example, if we send a spy to Iran and he's going to take down the radar at a certain time, you know, he's not going to send us a WhatsApp He's going to send us a code of some sort, and the WhatsApp's not going to be the that the you know that the the radar will be down at noon. It's going to be encoded, so so we're going to be looking for some kind of code, and uh, that's number one. And uh, what have I done here? I know what I've done. Sorry, I'm a little spaced out today. I, I tell you, I was I was. This is like the heat of the day doing hardcore mountain biking. It's like your head becomes kind of like... A, you ever wrapped a potato in tin foil and put it in the coals? Yeah, that's my brain right now. Which is making me say some pretty random stuff, which I hope you're enjoying. I don't think I've ever mentioned staying during this class, ever. <laughs> we better get cooking, okay? So, so first is code. The second thing is ID info is, you know, we need some kind of identification of our guy in Iran. The next thing is transmission is, you know, we need a proper transmission. And the next thing is outside verification. For all we know, our spy in Iran could have a, uh, you know, a gun to his head. And he's just preserving his own life, telling us he's put the radar down. And so we need some kind of outside verification. And lastly is our class, and that is control, and that is the author's role in history. And what I mean by the author's role in history is that the, uh, it's on me, right? I did flip it. Yeah. The author's role in history is whoever wrote this document 
If it's a human being, does it control history? If it's a human being, you guys are all like, you guys have been in class a little too long today. No, let's do this tomorrow. If, if it's a human being, can, it, can that human being control history to go along with its narrative? Yes or no? No. no. If it's a divine being, if it's God, can it control history to go along with its narrative? Yes. Yes. So that's where we're at. We're just seeing that does the author have control? If the answer is yes, it wasn't a human being. If the answer is no, it was a human being. That's the forest, not the trees. So this is just a principle, and that is that the actions of the forefathers are assigned for the people, for the children. Meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's lives are a paradigm that are going to play out throughout world history. So if we can see something about the paradigm play itself out, we see the control. Is that clear? Now, some of you may be saying, and rightfully so, that, well, you can easily just create a paradigm that works out well with history, right? You know, we already know history. We're a thousand years later. So figure out something in history, create the paradigm of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then you sent yourself, you gave yourself a nice control group, except you already knew the info. So then you can just create a paradigm. Got that? So that's, your, that's a question that you might not have had Am I supposed to be giving you questions that send you to sting on shots? But I'm, I, I like intellectual honesty, so let's be real about that. Okay? So that's what we want to see. And here's just an example of that. This is Abraham and Sarah's lives. They went through this whole thing, which looks a lot like what? That looks a lot like a Passover story, same exact story. You got Abraham, you got your Ishmael, you got your Isaac, you got your Asa, and you got your Jacob. I don't say Asal. I don't know why, it just, it just sounds so weird to me, Asal. We In Israel, we say Asa, okay? but it's spelled Asal. I apologize, but I just, I'm not calling that. Asa. Not that Asa means not human. Okay, anyway, so what we're going to look at, our paradigm is going to be a battle between the two of them over the land of Israel. Everyone say the word Israel? Israel. Okay, it's a battle between the two of them over the land of Yisrael. So, and let's look at their progeny. He gets the nickname Yisrael, and he gets the nickname Edom, which means red. Okay, and uh, I think Cheech had a cousin named Red, actually. And uh, and the so the Israelites and the Edomites. There's the Israelites and the Edomites, and that's going to be the play out in history. So they're going to have a fight, and that's going to play out in history. If we see it plays out in history, we got control. Got that? You can see it play out. And let's see if it plays out. So we're going to have a little scorecard. It'll be for fun. But it works for us. And the first battle we're going to have is over the birthright and the blessings. Guess who that goes to? You know what? Let's wake you all up by cheering. Ready? Who wins? That's it. Okay, so... So that goes to Israel, the Israelites, how they win that one. And, uh, and uh, sorry, not to the Israelites, to Jacob, our forefather. Now, Asa, he basically tricked Isaac, if you know the story. So he tricked Isaac, and Isaac's like, I'm going to kill him. And Jacob's like, I believe him. And so Jacob flees for like a couple decades, comes back, he's got four wives, 11 kids, and he's on his way back to the land. Now, how does Asaph know this is the day? Somehow he knows it's the day, because he is sworn to prevent Israel 
me and Jacob from coming into the land. So after decades, Asa somehow has his AWAC surveillance aircraft that knew this was the day. And he shows up at the border with an army of 400 men slaughtered Jacob and his family. Now, Jacob knows his, his client, and he already sold his birthright for a bowl of soup, so why don't we just like give him more immediate gratification and just start sending him gifts? Gifts after you sending like whole flocks. And Asa the whole time, like, for me, for me, for me, for me, for me. So when Jacob finally comes with his family across the border, Asa's all hugs and kisses. Although some say he bit him. But the, anyway, he makes it in. Let's hear it for Jacob. That's right. And uh, Jacob's in. And, uh, and then, whatever, there's the famine, and then the, Jacob and his family go down to Egypt. And Jacob passes away in Egypt and asks Joseph, who's the prince of Egypt, to promise to bring him back to bury him where? In the cave of the Machpelah in Hebron. It's called Machpelah because it means the doubles because there are three couples Adam and Eve in there, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, and Leah. And here's the question when they bring him up with this giant entourage with all of Egypt, Sorry, all of Egypt's dignitaries. And, you know, it was a massive, massive funeral for Jacob. When they get to the cave, Uncle Asa is with a sword drawn in front of the cave going, he's not going to be buried there. I'm going to be buried there. Now, you have to know a little Kabbalah to know that, that Asa is the... Um, Asa's the... Uh, oh, sorry. That you have to know that Hebron is the key to the land of Israel. Even King David had to rule there for seven years before he could rule Jerusalem. The key to the land of Israel is Hebron. So this is a major crisis. Who's going to get buried there? It ends really easy and quick, and it kind of rhymes with crisis. I guess it's ISIS. And uh, (laughs) Jacob's grandson decapitates Asa. He was deaf. He didn't even know what the guy was saying. He was like, who is this furry guy? And and Asa was very hairy, and he just... Decapitates him, and Jacob gets the go. He gets the nod, and he's buried there. And that's the third. And let's hear it for Jacob. Uh, would you be so kind as to pour me a cup of water? I'd even take two, probably. This we need to get new water. This stuff it tastes like pouring water. <laughs> Every time I drink it, I feel like I'm drinking from the corner. <laughs> I'm so unfiltered right now. I'm complaining about each course water. Thank you so much. You saved my life. Amazing. I'm like totally dehydrated. Amen. I guess it, I'm kind of, I'm kind of like shown. Who I believe wrote the. Uh, <laughs> can't even drink a cup of water without some incantation. You know, I, I actually had perfect reviews in this course like 25 years ago, and they fired me from the course. So I went up to them, I'm like, I have perfect reviews, man, what's up? And they're like, they're like, Rabbi, you just look a little too convinced. We need some clean shape. And. And I was like devastated. I love teaching this. I'm so upset. So years later, they brought me back. I said, what's up with that? And they, they're, like, they're like, nobody cares anymore. 
Just deliver the glass. So, okay, now, that's the actions of our forefathers, which is a sign for the future. So that's Jacob and Asa. Coming up, Israelites versus the Edomites. If you see the three play out, we got ourselves an author. You got that? You see the three play out, we got an author. And it, now I'm just going to remind you, it has to play out in such a way that it couldn't be that we made up this particular paradigm. You got that? It has to play out such that we didn't make up the paradigm. So wait you see what's coming up. This is where the class gets a little creepy. Now, uh, we're going to start with just the Jews leaving Egypt. Who attacked us when we left Egypt? We were attacked by a nation called Amalek. And I keep pressing the button, but it keeps not saying Amalek. Oh, there it is. Amalek, okay, for those fresh key Hebrew, Amalek is just when you have this amazing communion, you know, on some psychedelic drug at a giant lake. Anyways. <laughs> Took a little while. So, anyway, so that's Amalek. Amalek is, uh, attacks the Jewish people on their way to the land of Israel. We get attacked by this nation, which is a little bizarre, too, because... The biggest civilization in history has just been decimated without a single Jew even lifting a finger. Like, you don't mess with the Jews on the way to the land of Israel. Just don't mess with us. But Amalek messes with us and tries to destroy us in the desert. And, of course, Joshua, like Moses, stood up there and Joshua fought the battle and, and uh, with, you know, whatever. And we won. Okay, so we beat them. And, uh, but we need to know more about Amalek. How do you know he's from Asa. I didn't know he's an Edomite. So let's look in here. And uh, we'll see Asa. Asa had a child named Eliphaz. That means my God is fuzzy. And <laughs> Eliphaz Eliphaz had a little bit of a self-control issue and uh, cohabitated with his daughter Timna. And they had Amalek. Okay? So Amalek is actually, through incest, is the grandchild of Asa. And he's like the worst of all the evil of Asa. Like if you took Asa's evil out with a syringe and injected it into the fetus of Timna, she'd be over here. Then you'd get Amalek. Amalek's a really bad dude. He's like, you know what the Jews say that, you know, like Jews, like we have this, like, you know, the holy nation and the chosen nation and the chosen people. You know, whatever. So they're the polar opposite. Like God creates polarities on everything. So there's like, they're like the Jewish nation of evil. So to speak, meaning they're like the evil of, of the world. And the Jews represent that. And uh, represent the light. Uh, but here it is very interesting. This was written by a Kabbalist that just kind of gives you a sense of uh, who Amalek is. And the first paragraph's a little complicated. It's a little more complex, but uh, I'll help us with it. So it says like this. It says, in man's heart... Amalek is the power that freezes man. What does it mean to freeze man? And the answer is, by causing him to see only what? Absurd chance. What does that mean, absurd chance? You know what I mean? Like coincidence? Like, oh, look look how random this has. You know, like, well, that was random. You know, people speak like that. People speak like, like there's such a thing as absurd chance. So to see things as absurd chance and therefore deny ethical conscience. Where do you get ethical conscience? Is that God-oriented or not? Ethical conscience. 
Well, you got to watch your Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson debates, but but the uh, but ethical conscience comes from a God perspective. Okay, that's a God perspective. And what moral perfection does that come from God or not? Yeah, when you're going humanistic, there's no moral perfection. There's just molecules bumping into each other, and you just kind of got to hope they bump into you in the way it feels good. Okay, and uh, that, but moral perfection that comes from God. Clear. So that's what freezing man means. Amalek represents freezing man. And in fact, this, why does he use the word freezing? Why did this great cobbler, who lived over 100 years ago, he passed away in 1900, um, why did this cobbler use that term? Because the actual word in Hebrew in the Torah, when Amalek attacked us, it says, Asher Karachabader. They ran into you. As if like, it was a coincidence. It's a really weird word. When you're getting attacked by a nation, they don't. You don't run into each other. We didn't. We didn't like run into each other at the mall. You understand? The Jews are on their exodus, and we got attacked. They didn't run into us. But what does the word karachav mean? Also, it doesn't only mean mikre, which means to run into somebody randomly, but it also what's the word kar mean? Oh, freeze! He's the power that freezes men. Because when you think you just ran into someone at the mall, that freezes each other. And what do we all like to say? That it's a... It's a small... Well, coincidence, or we'll say it's a small world. Oh, yeah. Which is not the right thing to say. What I say is it's a large world well-managed. It's a large world well-managed. And that's, that's the Jewish. We see the word coincidence, we spell it with an S. Coincide. Okay? God has coincide all events. Not everything that's going on in our lives is orchestrated. Which is amazing. Amazing the concept of God that we have because it's really because you have full free will. So everything's orchestrated. Yeah, you have free will. Like that's an absolute paradox. How is it that everything's being orchestrated for you yet you're having full free will? Because that means anyone being orchestrated around you must not have free will if they're all being orchestrated around you. Yet ask any of them and they'll tell you they do have free will. So in the puzzles beyond complex of this world. And that's how awesome. That's how we'll never understand who God is. Like we'll just never get it. Okay, back to us. Sorry, I that was tangential. In the physical body, Amalek fights to destroy the sanctity of Brit Milah, the covenant and the circumcision, in space. Amalek covets the land of Israel and is sworn to prevent Israel from attaining its perfection, which is interdependent with its dwelling in the land. Which now you know why why Asaph's waiting at the border on that day. In the history, get ready to read, you're all going to join me in a little bit. In the history of mankind, Amalek symbolized the foremost evil amongst the nations. And it's always risen up to destroy Israel together when the time of redemption is imminent. When we're coming into the land, or blessings are going to be, or we're leaving Egypt coming into the land. That's when the time of redemption is imminent. But his end will be eternal annihilation, for even those who embody, embody its values are destined to non-existence. So, Amalek's going to hit us right when we're coming into the land. Now, we build, we win. We built first temple, destroyed by the Babylonians. There was then a, a bloodless coup that took place, and it became the Persian Empire. We went into the seventy-year exile. First temple destroyed, seventy-year exile. Well, according to our system, what should likely happen on the seventieth year? Well, first of all, the seventieth year. Where should we be going? Back to the land of Israel. What's like? Who's likely to attack us when the time of redemption is imminent? 
Amalek should be attacking us. He's the direct descendant. And lo and behold, we get attacked by Haman, a full genocidal attack in Persia, where every man, woman, and child of the Jewish nation is to be wiped out on one single day of the year. Now, that's the Purim story, and Esther, you know, becomes the queen. It's an amazing story, how a prophetess winds up becoming the, the queen of, of Persia, and whatever, you know the story. I'm, I'm not going to go into the Purim story, but basically, you get the point, okay? We got that point. But uh, let's, go, let's go a little deeper into Haman, because how do we know Haman is Amalek? And so you'll look here, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamdasa, the Agagite, Agag, Agagi. Who is Agag? The book of Samuel, bring to me Agag, the king of Amalek. So it turns out Haman is a direct descendant of the king of Amalek. So our arch enemy in the Purim story, on the 70th year, the year of our redemption, is carried out, that genocide is carried out by a direct descendant of Amalek when the time of redemption is imminent. Now, we've only had three times of redemption. We left Egypt, we left Babylon or Persia, we rebuild the second temple, we go into 2,000 years of exile until the year 1948 when we declare what? State of Israel. We declare the state of Israel and who attacks us right before? The Nazis. We get our third and final attack when the time of redemption is imminent. Now, some of you may have noticed that this is a different narrative than the state of Israel likes to have. What's the state of Israel's narrative? Is that because of the Holocaust, we have the state of, we need the state of Israel. And that's why whenever a dignitary comes to Israel, what's their first stop? Take me out of the to show them this is what happens if we don't have a homeland because of this. We built our land, so don't mess with us. Don't mess with us. Yeah, and that's their narrative. But because of the Holocaust, we have the state of Israel. But what's the Torah narrative? Is because of the state of Israel, we had the Holocaust. Because it was the seventieth year, we had Haman. Because we left Egypt, we had Amalek. You understand that 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 Amalek comes because of the state of Israel. It's also an amazing proof that the secular state of Israel was divine. You get that? Because if, if it really was purely man-driven, we shouldn't have had an attack by Amalek. But here we get a full Amalek attack right before the state, declared by secularists. And we get a full attack from Amalek. Let's you know a little something about how God can work through, you know, secular, you know, state means. Okay, but who's convinced that the Nazis are on the land? Like, how do we know that? How are we supposed to know that? Would you like a little proof about that? So let's check it out. Because we don't have the book of Exodus where Amalek attacked the Jews, and we don't have the book of Esther where Haman's there. And here we have, what book are we going to use? Well, how about we use Hitler himself? Hitler stated, it is true, we are barbarians. It is an honorable title. I free humanity from the shackles of the soul, from the degrading suffering caused by the false vision called conscience and morality. The Jews have inflicted two wounds in mankind, circumcision on its body, conscience on its soul. These are Jewish inventions. The word for world domination will be fought entirely between us, the Germans, 
and the Jews, which is just a bunch of people studying Torah, not exactly having wars. All else is facade and illusion. Hmm, what do you think? Amalek? Does that sound a little familiar from the Kabbalists from the 1800s? Can I remind you a little bit here? I'll remind you a little better. Here's the Kabbalists from the 1800s. It's almost as if Hitler himself was reading this book and quoting straight out of the book. So, as far as Hitler himself being the leader of this genocidal attempt right before our redemption, that's pretty strong. But perhaps we could have even stronger proof that this is the third hit from the uh, from Amalek at the time of our redemption. What we're going to do to go deeper into these proofs is something that's just beyond proof. I mean, this is crazy what you're about to see. But we're going to open up. We're going to open up a piece of Talmud that is actually which of all the Talmuds? It's the tractate called Megillah. And when we open up the tractate Megillah, there's a question asked. Rabbi Yitzhak said he was asked. What is meant by the verse? This was written 3,000 years ago by King David. Oh God, don't grant the desires of the evil man. That's part one. Part two. And don't let him drop out his bit. You know what a bit is? That's the part inside the horse's mouth. On the lips of the horse. When you draw it out, it goes. When you pull it in, it stops. Yeah. So part two is don't let him draw out his bit. And part three lest he raise himself above others. So this the Talmud wrote, this is close to 2,000 years ago, the Talmud wrote this, uh, although the Talmud was finished writing in 500 from there, and, but it was being written in Babylon, it's a Babylonian Talmud, and check out the answer. This is the Talmud, believe it or not, watch the answer. That was Jacob 4,000 years ago. Our forefather prayed to God, this is a prayer, don't grant, because remember, it's, oh God, it's like a prayer, don't grant the desires of the evil man. This refers to Asaph. And don't let him draw out his bit. This refers to Germania of Edom. Germania is actually the term of Germany throughout almost all of its history. Germania of Edom. The Russians still call it. And for should they go forth, they would destroy. Part C, for should they go forth. This is the bit. Draw out the bit. What happens? They would destroy the entire world. Huh. Well, that's interesting. Why is the Talmud mentioning Germany by name? And this is Jacob, who's, uh, if you know anything about Jacob's life, he did a lot of shepherding. And all the time he was shepherding, he was praying for the Jews and protecting us throughout history. Except there was one chapter of Jewish history where he got nervous. And what chapter was that? The chapter that had to do with Germany. And our Talmud actually expresses Germany by name. And it mentions the mechanism by which Germany could destroy the world. And that is drawing out the bit. Well, what's the bit? Well, the Talmud goes on to explain the bit. Rabbi Chama Bar Hamina said there are 300 crown princes in Germania of Edom. What's the bit? Can you get anything done with 300 crown princes? No. What's the issue? Dis. Disharmony, dis, disunity. They never can get anything done. Well, you want to hear something very interesting? Is at the end of the... Well, maybe I'll show you the next slide. Now, at the end of the 1900s, a man by the name of Bismarck unites Germany. Immediately after that, World War I breaks out, and Germany almost destroys the world. 
The Allies win, separate Germany, only to be reunited under Hitler, and they go out to destroy the entire world. So the Talmud is mentioning Germany by name. This thousands of this is a prayer King David wrote. It. It's a prayer of Jacob. I mean, even if you say the Talmud was finished writing in 500, if you know any German history, it's not really something to reckon with. It's just. Uh, whatever, it was tribes. It was just crazy tribes. 300 crown princes. Here's a modern book that explains the mechanism again. It's by the end of the Middle Ages, which had seen Britain and France emerge as unified nations, Germany remained a crazy patrick of some 300 individual states. The Talmud nails the number right on the head. Like the actual number throughout all of Germany's history. Forgot your name. Shmuel, what's your question? I know, I saw Pink Floyd play on the Berlin Wall in 1990. Now it's back together. So, so, so it's our view is that there were three attacks from Amalek. We're already here now. Now we're here. Amalek only attacks, they go, they're either sleeper cell or activated cell. When we're in exile, they're sleeper cell. We have regular anti-Semitism, like Christian anti-Semitism, pogroms and stuff. But when the, when we're going to be redeemed, that's when Amalek activates. We've only had three times we've come back to the land. Egypt, Babylon or Persia, and, and the state of Israel. All three have been met with an attack from Amalek. Hey, you guys convinced Nazis are the third... Third, uh, the third hit. Let's, well, let's go a little further. Now, I strongly suggest that anyone who needs the washroom holds it in. <laughs> because, not really, but, but you just, you don't want to leave. I've been known to even pause the class just to let one individual come back from the mat. Because what comes after this gets crazy. Ready? Here we go. By the way, it's very short. We only have like five minutes left. Maybe a little more. Especially when I go backwards. Now, was I pressing the button on that thing? Anyway, now we're going to look into the Megillah itself. Megillah Esther, which literally means the revelation of the hidden. Megillah means to reveal. Esther means hidden. Revelation of the hidden. What's the one thing hidden in the whole book? God's name. God's name never shows up throughout the book. Unless it just says king, not qualified with the word Ahasuerus. So it just says king. That means not only the king of the story, Ahasuerus, but also means God. Anyway, when you're reading the, the, the Megillah, it looks like this. Okay? Megillah is generally done in pictures, no lady jumping out of a cake. Okay? It's just, it just looks like that. You know? And while you're reading the book, all of a sudden you get to this bizarre page, a page that is truly unique in our Torah. And what do you get? You get this page that has the names of Haman's sons who were killed and the word end on the other side. Very strange, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you just never picture our Torah wasting space like that. And especially with a list of names of people who aren't part of the story. They were not in the story before that and they're not in the story after that. So what are they doing here? And why do they get an Excel sheet? <laughs> and what's going on here? It's such a strange page. It, it, it's asking us to ask about it. 
And so it's very convenient for us, by the way, because we're going to translate the page right in the middle. Whoops. And the Jews struck at all their enemies with the sword and with slaughter and destruction and did as they pleased to those who hated them. And in Shushan, the capital, the Jews slew and destroyed 500 men, including uh, all the men who are observing in the room. Please take a deep breath and say it with me. Ready? <laughs> yep. Okay, so they were killed. They're killed with the sword, and then it lists their names in this weird fashion. And again, for a Megillah to be kosher, it's got to have this Excel sheet. It's got to have the names and the word in on the other side. Now, watch what happens next. Now, is there a woman in the crowd named Esther, by the way? Do we have an Esther in the room? Oh, we got an Esther over there? Your name's Esther? Your human name's Esther? Fabulous. We've got an Esther. Do you mind that we'll use you? You're going to be Queen Esther for all of us. All that's going to happen is the king is going to ask you what you want. And now I'm just going to set the stage here because Haman's already dead. The ten sons of Haman are dead. Haman actually had a daughter. She committed suicide. And and Mordechai, the leader of the Jews, is wearing the signet ring that Haman was wearing. And the king's about to ask you a question. He's going to grant you requests. Okay, get ready to answer. That same day, the number of those killed in Shushan the capital were reported to the king, notice the capital K. The king said to Queen Esther, and shoots on the capital, the Jews have slain and destroyed 500 men, including the ten sons of Ahab. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? What is your request now? It shall be granted to you again. What is your petition further? It shall be fulfilled. Esther, you can have anything you want. And just to, sometimes they need to give a woman a clue. I don't think she needs the clue, but sometimes they get like these birthright crowds, and the girl's like, Ottoman. <laughs> And, uh, she wants to go to, like, get frozen yogurt. I, I don't know what she wants from the king, you know, exactly. But uh, I have a feeling this Esther's going to know what she wants. But, I, by the way, I, this is what I said to this birthright girl. I was, like, I was like, your people have been in exile for 70 years. Jerusalem's been destroyed, as well as all the cities. And Jews are now exiled everywhere. Not, there's, like, barely a remnant of a single Jew in the land of Israel. And you're now married to the king, and he's offered you whatever you want. What would you ask for? Her answer was, I don't know. Anyway, what would you ask for? I mean, you ask for anything. To what? They already did that. That's over. This is after that. What? It's all over. They've already killed him. Yeah, commission the Jewish people to come back to him. What else? He didn't just say one way, she can have whatever you want. How about we rebuild the temple? That ain't cheap. Yeah? Rebuild the temple, rebuild the cities, like commission. By the way, he was fabulously wealthy, the king of Persia. And if it's God, there's no brain. Yeah? So, in other words, yeah, you got it. Return our exiles back to the land of Israel. Well, let's just watch what happens to Esther. Esther bumps her head and goes temporarily insane and replies, If it pleases the king, allow the Jews of Shushan to do tomorrow as they have done today, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. 
What's up with your Esther? <laughs> what happened to Esther? What happened to Esther? Nothing about Jerusalem. Nothing about returning the exile. Nothing about nothing. In fact, the temple's only built the next generation when her son Daryavesh commissioned it. It's a disaster of an answer. And when you see this in the Megillah, you just got to be like, huh? What? Ten, ten dead men? Tomorrow? Like, what was she like? I think we're down and uh, tomorrow. Instead, but when a prophetess says the word tomorrow, what might she mean? She wants to eradicate the possibility of Amalek ever raising its ugly head again. Wow, I like that. I like that. Perhaps that's what this is going to be like symbolically representing, perhaps. Never heard anyone say that. But when a prophetess, everybody, when a prophetess says, anyone from England here? Not one for you? Oh, you're from England? You're from England? If you don't mind answering this for us. I'm sorry for putting everyone on the spot here. When a prophetess says the word tomorrow, what might she mean? The future. The future. <laughs> I say the future. It's fun. I, I, just, I always say it every time. Everyone say it together. The future. The future. The future. Future, by the way, is spelled F-U-C-H-A-W-H. Ready? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the future. (laughs) One suicide. Ten others hanged in Nuremberg prison for Nazi war crimes. Huh. Isn't that peculiar? Can you imagine the author's like, hey, it wasn't supposed to be 11. Hey, there's some poison. Because it was supposed to be 10. And it turned out to be 10. What's the date? October 16th, 1946. What's that date in Hebrew? The date in Hebrew is Taf Shin Zion. 400 plus 307, 107. Zion is 7. Check out this part of the newspaper. Courtroom photo of Nazi war crimes trial in Nuremberg, Germany. Though the trial ended in June 1946. By the way, that year was Taf Shin Vav. Though the, court ended, though the trial ended in June 1946, sentencing was repeatedly postponed due to appeals for amnesty. For those people under the age of 40, amnesty means pardon. They should be pardoned, forgiven. Now, tell me, today, in 2019, if we find a 96-year-old Nazi, we pardon him or we throw the book at him? We throw the book at him. These were hardcore caught red-handed major Nazis in the Nazi government. Appeals for amnesty? In other words, whoever authored this document did not like the June date. June wasn't good. June was Tashin Vav. And it got postponed till October. So they were not killed in June Tashin Vav and not in July, Tashinbaum, not in August, Tashinbaum, not in September, Tashinbaum. But what happens at the end of September that year? Who 
until you actually open up the Zohar. When you open up the Zohar, you learn something really cool about Hoshana Rabbah. On the seventh day of the Sukkot holidays, i.e. Hoshana Rabbah, the judgment of the nations of the world is finalized. Sentences are issued from, and this is the only place I know in the Zohar where God is called this, the residence of the king. And that's a very strange way for the Zohar to call God. Sentences are issued in the residence of the king. You see that perfect allusion to the Purim story? To when Esther and, and the king are talking? Judgments are aroused and executed on that day. It lands exactly on the judgment day of the nations. Hoshana Rabbah, which most Jews have no idea that this is the judgment day of the nations. Yeah? Wouldn't the seventh day of Sukkot be Yom no, the, the night is. The, uh, the young kid starts the night after. It's not like Pesach, where the seventh day is the young yeah. Okay, next. Now, Taf Shin Zion, just to show you. Taf Shin Zion. See that? Taf Shin Zion, that's 707. So, check this out. For 2,500 years, every scribe to write a kosher Megillah had to write it this way, as I said, but you probably didn't notice. But if you look carefully, look at the first name. Do you notice something peculiar about the first name? Look down the list of the names, down to the middle there, Parmashtash. And then go down to the bottom of the page. For 2,500 years, every scribe has written into the scroll of the Book of Esther, in this list of names, the date of the Nuremberg trials when the ten Nazis are hung. The actual year. Appeals for amnesty, which did perfectly in the top Zion, which is just beyond, beyond amazing. 
So as Esther said, may it be done tomorrow as it was done today, and may Haman's ten sons be hung in the palace. Now, it gets even better. Something interesting is that 707 doesn't mention the millennium. Because in Hebrew, when we say dates, like what's what's our date now? Top shin, I and Tet. You want to make sure that door is closed? Or just give it, you know, just open it and say shh. Oh, no, no, then forget that. Soldiers yeah, it's sold. I know it's sold. <laughs> so, like, right now, it's Taf, Shin, Ayin, Tet. We don't mention the millennium. Right now, it's seven... What is it? Right now, it's seven, seven, nine. But we say 57, seven. We don't mention the millennium. In this particular case, the millennium even show. The millennium actually even shows up. How many times has there been a 707? Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav. And it turns out you probably didn't notice it on the page, but check out the Vav. Anyone can find the Vav? There's a unique Vav on the page. There it is at the bottom. There's a Vav that's double the size of all the letters. And that Vav, I don't have the Zohar here, but I'll tell you, just for some of you, you might be interested in hearing this Zohar about this Vav. It says when the, when the Vav representing the sixth millennia, that's our millennia we're in now, when the Vav uh, descends, marking the beginning of the sixth millennia, the final hay of God's name will rise up from the dust of the exiles. Okay, that's just for the maybe yavin, whoever that's interesting for should enjoy that. Okay, but it's very redemptive. This Vav is a very redemptive Vav. Now, we mentioned there were 10 Nazis, but there were actually 11, right? 10, one commits suicide. And here's just a small trivial thing to note. Is, uh, it's just that Haman had this daughter. And how we know about the daughter is that the Megillah mentions Haman mourning. It doesn't make sense that he's mourning, because in the story, there's no um, mention of anyone dying. But the Talmud tells us he's mourning over his daughter who committed suicide, having just dumped a bucket of you-know-what on her father's head. She thought, she was up on a balcony, and she thought it was Mordecai leading her father, so she thought she would dishonor Mordecai by dumping a bedpan on his head. But when he looked up, she saw it was her father and jumps to her death. And that's why these, these words in the Megillah says, and Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hastened to his house, mourning and having his head covered in filth. This is Goring, the one who committed suicide. This is dead Goring. And this is Goring out on the town. <laughs> That's just strange. But it, it is interesting that the one, meaning that whoever authored this document had 11 Nazis and one commits suicide and happens to be a cross-dressing was, was kind of interesting because Haman had a daughter. Now, all of this has been pretty interesting, I imagine, for all of you to get a sense of, of who authored this document and who could pull this off. Could a human being have pulled this off? What do you think? Human being pulled this off? And how about our three redemptions, each having the attack from Amalek 
exactly exactly according to what that Kabbalist told us. When the time of redemption is imminent, that's when we get hit by this nation. They're a total sleeper cell nation until we're trying to come back to the land. That's when we get it from them. We've only come back to land three times. Each time we got a major hit. The only thing that could get better is if we could see that the Nazis themselves knew what they were doing. We can imagine like a Nazi came in here and like said he knew what he was, they knew all of this. That's the only thing that could get better. Now this is a Newsweek article and uh, it, sh- it just talks about the 10 men getting hung. It's kind of interesting that the hangman's name is Woods because the Megillah mentioned the word eights many, many, many times about that people were hung on the tree. It says hung on all at eights many times. But the interesting part for us is after nine Nazis had their names read off and were hung, the last Nazi goes crazy. Watch what happens. Only Julius Stryker went without dignity. He had to be pushed across the floor, wild-eyed and screaming, Hal Hitler. Mounting the steps, he cried out, and now I go to God. He stared at the witnesses facing the gallows and shouted, Purim Fest, Discovery today is, is, you know, it's worth a day just to like really lay it out and see, like, who authored this document? Everyone knows it's a document. That's not argued. The argument is only on whether it was authored by a human being or authored by God. And so, if you don't mind, really I'm working. You work the tripod for me, please. Come stand over there. And so, the question is, imagine like, ladies and gentlemen, imagine over here is, uh, it zooms also, but imagine over here is, this is like, this is like Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, and, and then like, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and then, you know, Egypt, and the plagues, and the, and then Mount Sinai, and, and then First Temple, it was like a couple hundred years, and then, and then it was Babylon 70 years. And then it was Second Temple for a couple hundred years. And that was destroyed by the Romans. And then we go into like 2,000 years of exile. By the way, that wall is 6,000. The Jewish history only goes to 6,000. We have to have a third temple period by the time we get to 6,000. So, you tell me when to stop. Okay, like 2,000 years... And then like 19, then the Nazis, and then 1948, and then 67, 
on the sixth week of the sixth counting of the Spiro, counting of the Spiro Salina, the sixth day of the sixth week was the sixth day war when we get back, which is found that's Yisum should be Yisum, the foundation of foundations. And that place, the Temple Mount is called the Foundation Stone. The Evan Shetia is called the Foundation Stone. On the on foundation of foundation was the six day war when we got back to the foundation. I'm still going. Tell me when to stop because, like, you got to tell me to stop at some point. Should I stop? Okay, I'll stop. With a, with a nice view of the Temple Mount, right? Now, can you imagine the author of the document saying, you know what? Forget that. Call it a quiz. Game's off. Can you imagine God dropping us down? Can you imagine God saying, you know what? Forget that. What are the chances of that right now? With everything that's transpired, what are the chances of that? And the answer is, there's no chance of in other words, this is the best of times, the best of times of clarity that you could ever have. Yet, what do we see? It's the worst of times of clarity. It makes no sense. We should almost have no free will anymore. And yet, people have total free will, and people are making really tough choices. In fact, you know, probably every one of us in this room has either siblings, cousins, friends who, who have totally left Judaism. Just in the last few years. Just in the last few years. Which is like, it's beyond belief when you have the perspective that you just got in this day of classes. It must be that they just never saw these classes because no one would ever do that. And yet, people are doing it all the time now. They're just dropping like flies. It would be like an analogy as uh, if you were in a train with 100 cars on your way to Grand Central Station. And 90 of the 100 cars are already in, just flying in. And you're in the last car, and some schizophrenic guy comes up and he goes, We're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. And you're like, What? And the guy jumps out the back emergency exit. You see him rolling down the track. People come up to you like, Who is that? Some crazy guy. He thinks we're not going to make it. And of course, this whole conversation is going on. You're already stopped. You're already in the central station. And yet, all of us have people very close to us who are literally rolling down the tracks as if God dropped our destiny. What are the chances that the author of this whole narrative of our Torah and the whole narrative of our history, what are the chances that the author would call it off now? Zero chances. God is batting at thousand. He's been knocking it out of the park. Everything's happening exactly as reported in the narrative. You've got to be patient, like Bob Marley says. Yeah. Some say it's just about the thing. We've got to fulfill the book. That could be. We got, there's other things. got to get fulfilled. got to be patient. Right? That's where he says, How long shall they kill our prophets? While we stand beside and look. Right? How long should what does he mean kill our prophets? What was he saying? He was saying, how long will the world walk on the values that came from the prophecies? How long? And the answer is they say it's just a part of it. 
we've got to fulfill the book. We've got to fulfill the book. And there's, there's other parts of it. There's details that need to fulfill. But he's not dropping us. We're not getting dropped. And you all have that clarity, but I'm going to tell you something. Who has a greater chance of reaching out, you or me? The answer is you. Because I don't even know those people that you reach out to. I don't know them. You know them. And get smart and figure out how to get some info into them to, so that they can also make proper choices. Choices come from knowledge. Knowledge, you got to know stuff to make informed choices. You need the information. So please, God, help us with that. And I want to—I got a big ask for everybody here. There's no way you did this whole day without concretizing it in something. So I got a couple things. One, first of all, is just to let you know that we have a co-ed course every single day downstairs, hour to hour to hour to hour, with the best teachers, our international staff of rabbis, who I think everyone's here right now, are in Israel, and we're all here now, teaching hour by hour in the essentials course. And that's going on every day. And that's also going to be going out eventually live, right, Bradley? We're going to go live somewhere. That's going to eventually be going live every hour. We'll go live. But that's that's there. I'm already live every day. You can just go Rabbi Yom, tell you on Google, and see my live feed. And the, um, the, that's available, but I want you all ever take one thing on. And please, if you can't, go to the hotel and take something on. Something small, not something that's going to freak everybody out. Take something on that's just like, this I take on forever to remind me of the day where I had that perspective. Where I had that full view, which is really Yerushalayim. You know, Yerushalayim also means you read to see, and Shalim, total perspective. Shalim means complete. So Yerushalayim together is like total perspective. So take that total perspective and put it in something forever. I don't care if it's, you're going to say Shema before you go to bed. It could be the smallest thing ever. But take something on. That there's something, or those of you who have been, you already took everything on, like these sin girls up front. But, <laughs> but you've been a little lackadaisical about something. There's something you're a little lax on. Okay? I don't know what you're lax on. Maybe you, maybe you don't watch the next year better. Or something. But, take something, all of us, those of us who are more observant, some aspect of your observance where you've been a little... Because what does it mean to be lackadaisical? It means lack is that I've gotten fuzzy. I'm being fuzzy about things. But take a moment of non-fuzzy moment, this non-fuzzy moment, and take on something. You understand that that'll be a reminder, a concretization, like something where you integrate the non-fuzzy moment with some action. Do something. All of you know what that is. I don't know what it is for you. But think about a spot where you've been like not really taking things very seriously. You've been going from that fuzzy perspective and just take on one little thing that really can be very little. It's for you. It's for you to always have that one, that trigger for clarity that you'll remember it by. Uh, may you all be blessed. Shalom, shalom. It was a pleasure. It was a lot of fun. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.